Hebrews, first 10 chapters. We've gone through them, and of course the theme of this, really the entire book, is to be faithful, to be faithful to the faith which Christ has finished. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he is the author or the originator and the finisher, the author and the finisher of our faith. Of course, the message here in the book of Hebrews is be faithful to that faith. Be faithful. And as we'll go through the, the last chapters, and especially in chapter 11, we're going to see that theme um, being given to us in the words, be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. And of course, chapter 11 gives so many examples of people in the scripture whose faith was complete, who, who were faithful to the end, the end of their lives. And so, in the first 10 chapters, we see what we put our faith in. In chapter 1, if we look at chapter 1, we have an introduction. The introduction into this book, the first three verses, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And here, God has spoken. God spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke through prophets. And he spoke in various at various times, various manners, but he gave people his word. He spoke in time past unto the fathers. And it says here, in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son, through Jesus, the Son of God, God's final speech to man, Jesus Christ. In the Son of God, there are seven statements given regarding him. It's in verse 3, well, in verses 2 and 3. This sevenfold description of the Son of God. And how does it begin? What does he say of his Son? He says in verse 2, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. He is the heir. This deals with his ownership. He's the heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. And here we see in these two statements, we see the position of the Son of God with respect to his creation, with respect to everything that was made. Okay, He is the heir of all things, the owner, and he is the creator. He goes on in verse 3. And in verse 3, we see his divine person. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What is he there describing? He's describing the Son of God as being the brightness of his glory. He is equal with the Father. He is the express image of his person. He is identical in character. And we recall the time when Jesus was speaking to the disciples. I believe it was Philip said, well, show us the Father. You know, you're speaking about going back, going to your Father. Well, why don't you just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. It sufficeth us. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have you been with me and you've not known me? If you know me, you know the Father. Okay, to know one is to know the other. They are essentially and expressly the same, the express image of the person of God. And so here is his divinity. And then, of course, we see in the remainder of verse 3, his work. We see his position, his person, and now his work. It says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so here we see his incarnate work. And, of course, this is what Hebrews is focused upon. He has purged our sins completely and finally, and that is demonstrated in his being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's being seated in heaven. 
It demonstrates the finality of his work. Jesus Christ has finished everything that was necessary in regards to our salvation. Everything in regards to our faith. Then, in this book, that's the introduction. And then there are three major sections that go through all the way up through chapter 10. There are three major sections in the book of Hebrews. And all of these sections confirm this fact that he has by himself purged our sins and he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has finished the faith. And in his completion of the faith, the next three sections are proofs of that statement. And each section, each of the next three sections looks at the three different roles. We'll each look at a different role of the, the, the divine roles of the Son of God. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was prophesied. And in the Old Testament, we see this Messiah who was prophesied, and he was to be three things. He was to be a prophet, he was to be a priest, and he was to be a king. All three roles in one divine person. The Messiah was going to be a prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses is there speaking to the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, he says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. Jesus is prophesied as being a prophet. The Son of God would be a prophet. Moses said, be a prophet like unto me, you are to hear him. And Jesus, in speaking to the Jews, said that Moses spoke of him. And that's the particular passage that's being referenced. But not only does the Old Testament view the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as he will be a prophet, but he will also be a priest. Psalm 110 and verse 4. Of course, this psalm is quoted over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. But in Psalm 110 verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek, he would be a priest and then, of course, he is also a king. And this reminds me, I'm reminded of what Nathan said to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says this. He's talking about God's mercy upon the house of David. And he says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And of course, we know that Jesus is the king who sits on the throne of David. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah prophesied. And he said, For unto us a son is given unto us a child is born he goes on and he says and he says for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty god the everlasting father the prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of david and upon his kingdom to order it to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever so there, the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah. The Son of God would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And remember, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to Jews. They would understand that these things were spoken of the Messiah. And what is the writer of Hebrews doing? He is showing Jesus as the Messiah in those three roles and explaining and preaching what he has accomplished. <clears throat> And so Jesus, in his incarnate work, has completed the faith and what he has accomplished in each of these roles confirms that fact. Let's look at that first office. We look at them as prophet, priest, and king. We're going to look at them in, the, in a different order. The first one addressed here in Hebrews chapter 1 is his role as king, the Son of God as the king. 
and what happens here in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and going on through the end of, or through verse 13, there are seven quotations coming, seven different quotations coming from the Old Testament. And we see in verse 4, it says, being made so much better than the angels. Now, if that ought to make you wonder, why would it need to be said that someone who is equal to God is better than angels? Why would that need to be said? Well, remember that here the Son of God is being presented in his incarnate work. When we talk about incarnate, what do we mean? In flesh. In the flesh. We are not speaking of God, the second person of the Trinity, though he is the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews is addressing him and speaking of his role in his incarnate work. When the Jews thought about Jesus, and these Jews back then, what did they think of? Well, many of them had seen Jesus. What did Jesus look like? Did he glow? Did he have wings? Do you have this halo over his head as a lot of the paintings? No, he looked just like another man. And so when you would speak of Jesus, these people think of Jesus better than the angels, him? So I want you to have in your mind here, understanding why he is making this, this point. Why is he accentuating this point and really driving this home? Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. <clears throat> he is superior to angels. Angels are the highest created order. But the incarnate Son of God is preeminent. He is higher than angels. He is the incarnate King who is superior to all the angels. And where is he seated? In his incarnate position now. And by the way, the Bible says that the Son of God has taken on human form for eternity. We are going to see him. We are going to be able to see the prints of the nails in his hands. We will see him, his bodily form. And he has taken this upon himself for eternity. There are several statements throughout this chapter here, speaking of Jesus as the king. What is better? Well, he has obtained a, he has by inheritance attained, obtained a more excellent name than the angels. And what is that name? He is the son. He is the son. Verse five, unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The father has never said that to any of the angels. Jesus is the son of God. And again, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. At his in incarnation, angels worshiped him. Verse 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. He possesses the throne of God. Verse 8, but unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He created. You look at verse 10, thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of thine hands. He's the creator. He is eternal. Verse 12, as a vesture, shalt thou fold them up, speaking of creation, they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. And then finally, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So here are all these statements. And statements, seven different quotes from the Old Testament, speaking of the Son of God as a king, as the king. He is higher than angels. And then we come to chapter 2. Again, we're still looking at him in his office of, of, of king. In chapter 2, the chapter starts with a great warning. Here's the warning. How did he start chapter 1? God has spoken in time past, and in these last days, God has spoken yet again, and his final speech is through his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the warning. Pay attention. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. 
or let them drift away. Do not let these things that have been spoken drift away. Pay attention. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. There's the warning. What's the great warning? Don't let these truths just drift away. Don't hear them and ignore them. This is God's speech. He has spoken to us and he has spoken in these last days by his son, Jesus Christ. And what is the message that is being spoken? It is the message of salvation. If you do not hear the message of salvation, there is no escape for you. This is important. If the, angel, if the word of angels always came to pass, how much more shall the word of the Son come to pass? You will not escape if you neglect salvation. And it was spoken by whom? By Jesus. Again, this is God's final speech. Through his Son, Jesus Christ, the gospel has been given to us. You'll not escape if you neglect salvation. And not only that, it was, it was preached to these people by those who heard Jesus. But not only that, God even gave confirmation to the truth of the message of the apostles. As they went out there through that first century, what were they doing? They were going and preaching in the name of Jesus, and God authenticated their message with what? Signs, with miracles. There was healing. Peter, healing the lame man, Paul, and others of the apostles performing miracles, authenticating that which God had given them to speak. And so the message was authenticated with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And again, the warning, don't neglect, don't neglect what God is saying. <clears throat> now, as we go down through the rest of chapter 2, what do we see? We see Jesus presented, again, as a king, but we see his humanity. We see his incarnation. And even though his, when people would see him as a man, they think, how could this be the son of God? In fact, what did the, what did the Jews say? Often they said, well, we know who he is. We, we know his father and his mother. This is just Jesus. We, we, Joseph... What, what makes him so special? How can he do all these miracles? Where did he get all this learning? We know where he came from. We know his father and his mother. And it was a stumbling block. And even though his humiliation, his incarnation, as the Bible puts it in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself, came as a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Even though his humiliation seemed to contradict that he was supreme even over angels, it was temporary. His humiliation was temporary. Look here in chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. How was Jesus made lower than the angels? Did he become less than God? No. He is saying here, he's using this to, to illustrate the fact that Jesus was made as a man. In previous verses, verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Okay, He's speaking there of the creation, of God creating man, human, Adam. Adam was created. He was made a little lower than the angels in the order of creation. Angels were higher beings than created man. But here Jesus has subjected himself to be made human. And so therefore we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. 
Why was Jesus made human? Why did he submit himself to come and to be in a lower order than even angels? Well, it was for the suffering of death. And he was crowned with glory and honor. It says that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So here in chapter 2, his humiliation was just temporary. That quotation is coming from Psalm 8, made lower than the angels. His incarnation was the means to completing his completing of the faith. He came to die. So he came as a man. And then, of course, the Bible tells us in verse 10 there, became him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation complete or perfect through suffering. And so the beginning of Hebrews shows Jesus in his office as a reigning king. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, we see him because of his suffering, because of his suffering death, He is a sympathetic high priest. We're introduced to him as a high priest. He took on him in verse 16, not the nature of angels. He did not come as an angel. He came as a man. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. No, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 2, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to support, to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He's not only the king, but he's also a sympathetic high priest. And here in chapter 3, we see the second office. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And in chapter 3, we're going to look at his role as an apostle or prophet. The word apostle means sent one. And Jesus was sent by the Father, with the message of the gospel. He is the prophet. And in chapter 3, God's apostle Jesus Christ is compared to whom? Note, he is compared to Moses. Who was Moses? Well, the Israelites viewed him as the greatest prophet that ever lived. Moses. And Moses, Jesus is compared to Moses, Jesus was faithful, just as Moses was faithful. And Scripture talks about Moses being faithful as a servant, a servant in his house. Moses was faithful. But the comparison there is that Christ is greater than Moses. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house. So yes, Moses was faithful, but he was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son or the heir, the owner over the house. What makes Moses so special? I mean, there were many prophets in the Old Testament, but there is a particular passage of scripture that gives us some insight into how Moses really was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. If you go back to Numbers, the book of Numbers and chapter 12, In the book of Numbers, chapter 12, we have there the story of Aaron and Miriam. And this was early on as in their traveling through the desert. In chapter 12, it says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not also spoken by us? And the Lord heard it. And so, Mo, and so God speaks to Aaron and to Miriam. Here they were. I mean, they're the brother. Aaron's the older brother. And Miriam is the older sister. Here's Moses. He's the youngest of the three siblings. And they're like, well, hey, you know, Moses, who do you think you are? God's spoken by us, too. 
And so the Lord says in verse 5, the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood at the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And listen to what God says here about Moses. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. Here's how you know who a prophet is. I will give him my words in a vision or in a dream. I'll make myself known to him. But in verse 7, he says, my servant Moses is not so. Not so with Moses who is faithful in all mine house, with him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently. That word apparently means plainly or appearing. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude or the likeness of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's quite a statement. Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, that is only said of Moses. God says, when I have a prophet, I will reveal through visions and dreams the message that I want him to give, but not so with Moses. When I speak with Moses, it's face to face. Moses will see my likeness. Now, he did, not see him, he did not see the glory of his face, and we know that from the scripture. But God would meet with Moses one on one. It was different. Moses was the greatest of Old Testament priests. And God's testimony there in Numbers chapter 12 was that Moses was faithful. God considered Moses to be faithful. But as great as Moses was, Jesus was a greater prophet. And we see Jesus in his role of prophet in chapters 3 and 4. Jesus was faithful as a son over his own house. Therefore, he is greater than Moses. And then we are given a second warning. There's a second warning given in in chapter 3. Verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice. And verse 8, Harden not your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. And this warning actually continues from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 13. There's a whole warning given. And what is that warning? Do not be like Old Testament Israel. They hardened their hearts. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. He says, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. He says, do not harden your hearts. Now, remember this. This this warning of hardening your heart is actually given to people who have heard the message. This is a warning that's given to us today. Who can harden their heart? This hardening of the heart is something that happens when it becomes calloused, when it becomes dull, no longer sensitive. Harden not your hearts. When someone tells you the same thing over and over and over, it's easy to do what? To tune them out. He's just going to turn it off. Do not harden your heart. And this is a really a unique danger for those who hear the truth over and over again. It's a warning to every one of us. Here you are sitting in church. You're hearing what you've heard before. Do not harden your heart. Be sensitive to the truth. And he gives the warning, the warning comes to a head there in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And again, he continues to reference Old Testament Israel. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Why? It was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. They didn't believe. 
So what happened? They were not able to enter into his rest. And of course, the promised land there, the land of Canaan being the example of the promised rest. Of course, he says there is another rest. It's not just, we're not just talking about the promised land here. He's talking about God's rest in heaven. But here, these, the Jews, the Old Testament Israelites, missed out. They came up to the promised land and they did not believe. They had hardened their hearts. They came to the edge of the promised land and they were not allowed to enter. And they wandered for 40 years until they all fell. All their carcasses fell in the wilderness. And then in chapter 4, as we come down past verse 13 to verse 14, here we see the third office introduced. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help or grace to help in time of need. Here's the third office, and this office starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 10. Jesus is the preeminent high priest. He is God's final high priest. And again, this is confirmation that Jesus has completed. He's the author and the finisher or the completer of our faith. Being introduced as the high priest, of course, it was alluded to or introduced there in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says the apostle and high priest, but he goes ahead and talks about the role of prophet. And here in chapter 4, verse 14 through 10, 18, he speaks of him as our high priest. And as a high priest, what does Jesus do? In his priestly role, Jesus purges our sins. He actually purges our sins. <clears throat> when we come to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1, says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. What is he spoken about? Well, he's referring back to the message of chapters 5, 6, and 7. And what is this sum? We have such an high priest such as just described. He is a perfect high priest. The last verse of chapter 7 speaks of the Son who is perfected, or that word consecrated forevermore. What are the perfections of this high priest? What kind of a high priest is he? Well, we know chapters 5 through 7. In 4.15, we saw that he could sympathize with us. He's a sympathetic high priest. He sympathizes with our weakness. In chapter 5, verses 1 and verse 5, we see that he is the priest who is chosen or ordained, appointed by God. Verse, chapter one, 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And back when we were looking at this, uh, no man could just choose to be a priest. It had to be one of God's appointment, and the offering that he offered had to be one approved by God. Not any man could just be a priest. And in verse 5, it says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. God is the one who placed Jesus Christ in that role of high priest. In 5 and verse 11, he comes down and says, We have many things to say about this high priest. He is like Melchizedek. And while it's not difficult to understand, he pauses in his description right there and gives a third warning. And here is the third warning. He says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing your dull of hearing. Here's the third warning. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be dull of hearing. And this warning goes from 5.11 all the way to 6.12. All the way through chapter 6, about past halfway. The last verse, the 6.12 says that you be not slothful 
Do not be slothful. And that word slothful is the same word he uses over here when he says you are dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now some who are dull of hearing may not even be saved. They may not even be regenerate. As we see in the first part of chapter 6, he says in verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance. Seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Don't be dull of hearing. <clears throat> what does it mean to be dull of hearing? Or to be sluggish? Um, to be slothful in your hearing. Well, how are you when you hear the Word of God preached? Are you attentive? Are you eager to hear it? You know, a lot of people go to a ball game. And what happens when you're at a ball game? Or maybe a boxing match. You know, what happens if you go to a boxing match or a ball game and you're, you're on the edge of your seat, it's exciting, and you're watching, and you're eager, you're rooting for your team, and you're or a basketball game, some kind of a sporting event. And do you sit there and just kind of fall asleep? You know, you pay your money, go through the gate, get in, front row seat on the court, you're sitting there, and game starts, and you just kind of nod off. Oh, oh yeah, look, it's the, it's the Lakers. Okay. Oh, oh, it's over. Oh, time to go. Is that how people act at a ball game? No, man. They're 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 fanatics. They're jumping up and down, yelling. They're waving their towels. They're cheering their team on. They're not dull of hearing. What happens when you sit down as a family and you 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 want to watch a movie or something? Now in our house, mom's dull of hearing. She watches the first five minutes and falls asleep. Okay, and then she wonders when all the kids are quoting lines from a movie, oh, where's that from? I'll stay awake next, anyway. But, uh, you know, kids watch a movie, what do they do? They're glued to the screen. You know, they're watching the whole movie. But you sit around at the table to do math and what happens? You know, I start falling asleep. Listen, are you dull of hearing? When you sit here in church, where's your mind? Is it wandering? Are you out fishing? Are you out on a hike? Are you thinking of all the work that you need to get done this week or what didn't get done last week? Are you dull of hearing? That's exactly what he's talking about. And this is the great warning. It's a danger sign. If you are dull of hearing, be warned. When you sit in church, are you eager to hear the word of God? Do you pay attention? Or do you just fall asleep? Or does your mind wander? Now here's the great warning. So here, the perfections of our high priest. He can sympathize with our weakness. He's been chosen, appointed by God. He is like Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, when he gives this comparison to Melchizedek, what is the great comparison to Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a king-priest. But Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Abraham even paid tithes to Melchizedek. But Levi, who is of the seed of Abraham, even paid tithes in Abraham. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is a priest made like after the order of Melchizedek. And what is the great perfection that we see in verses 24 and 25? Well, let's go back to um, verse 23. Speaking of the Old Testament priests, he says, And they truly were many priests. There were lots of them. And why were there so many priests in the Old Testament? Because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And the comparison of Jesus, he's being compared to Melchizedek, because what do we know of Melchizedek? Well, we don't know his father. We don't know his mother. And we don't know where he came from. There's no birth date given, and there is no death certificate. 
Melchizedek was a priest. And his, he was a priest continually. In verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, it made like unto the Son of God, a bride of the priest continually. So Melchizedek was an Old Testament picture of Jesus, our permanent and eternal, never dying high priest. Jesus is a great high priest because he is a, an ever-living high priest. He never dies. And then, of course, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 7, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily to offer for his own sins, as those high priests did. The Old Testament high priests, what did they do? Before they could offer for the sins of the people, they offered for themselves. So he said, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for himself and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He is a sinless high priest. And then chapters 8 through 10, these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, take us from his perfection to where we are now looking at the nature of his ministry. Note chapter, note chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So here in chapter 8 and verse 6, our introduction to this high priest, he has a better ministry. He's obtained a better ministry than what? Than the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood. has obtained a better ministry than the Old Testament priest. He is the mediator of a better covenant. It's a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And then thirdly, this new covenant is established upon better promises. And then in chapter 8, he talks about the fault of the Old Covenant. It was faultless. I mean, I mean it, was, it was faulty. But the New Covenant is faultless. And then he describes that New Covenant there in Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> and so these three promises, the better ministry, mediator of the better covenant, the new covenant established upon better promises, these three promises are discussed, and he reverses the order in his discussion. He first notes the better promises upon which the new covenant is based. Here, this is chapter 8. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and verse 10 says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. He's going to put his law in their hearts, write it in their hearts. He's going to put it in their minds. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. Then he speaks about the knowledge of God. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And then the, the best part of this covenant is forgiveness. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In this covenant, sins are going to be dealt with for real or permanently, not just in a figurative sense. Because, as we'll see, the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse sin. But in this new covenant, sins are dealt with. And so here... There are better promises upon which a new covenant is based. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, there the, we see that the better covenant, it's better than the Mosaic covenant. And what was the Mosaic covenant? Well, we see there all the vessels we've been quoting, chapter 9, the tabernacle, all of that was what? It was just a symbol. It was a parable. It was a picture of what? Of the true tabernacle which is in heaven. There, the blood of bulls and of goats, what did it do? Well, it cleansed them ceremonially. It allowed them to be involved in the temple worship, but it could not purge the conscience. And so this new covenant is a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And then, of course, his priesthood. Speaking of his better ministry, he has obtained a better ministry. In chapter 9 and verse 12, 
It says, neither by the blood of bulls or by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus has entered the heavenly sanctuary. That's the true sanctuary of which the tabernacle was a picture. He has entered into the true sanctuary, not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, which is effectual in purging our conscience. In chapter 9, verses 25 through 28, it says, nor yet that he should offer himself often. Talks about the Old Testament priests, how they would go continually. They went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And then on top of that, the high priest went in once every year to offer the atonement. And it was done over and over again. But Jesus Christ, he has offered himself once, once for all. Chapter 9 Verses 25 through 28. And the last verse there of chapter 9 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin, unto salvation. Then we go into chapter 10. In chapter 10, talking about the inability of the law, the inability of those sacrifices to purge or to cleanse the worshipers. If they had been able to, they wouldn't have continued to be offered. But now that Jesus Christ has offered himself, what do we find in 10:18? And this is where we come to the end of this section on the Christ and his priestly work. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. It's done. There is no more offering for sin. Jesus Christ has completed the faith. He has done everything that was necessary for us to dwell forever in the presence of God. He has taken care of the sin problem. Just a couple of days ago, I was talking to um, my oldest. He's down there at school, and he says, Hey, Dad, have you ever heard of a, a Messianic Christian? Or, And I said, Oh, yeah, I said, I've heard of those. He goes, well, I had a talk with this guy, and it was the strangest thing. And I said, well, he doesn't understand the book of Hebrews. I can tell you that right now. And then my son started asking me questions about this conversation he had for the guy. And I said, well, that's Hebrews 9. That's Hebrews 4. That's Hebrews 10. And, he, and, and, so, and, he, and one of the questions he asked, Grayson asked me, he said, well, why don't you guys do sacrifices if you think the Old Testament law is so important? He goes, because we don't have a temple. Ha! And I said, that guy is probably not even saved. He claims to be leaving Jesus, but he believes that the sacrifices still need to be offered. Listen, Hebrews tells us there is no more offering for sin. Jesus Christ is the final offering. And yes, the temple is going to rebuild. And yes, they are going to offer sacrifices, but it's going to be a deception. The sacrificial system is complete. It is over. Jesus Christ has finished the faith. There is nothing more to add to what he has done. He has done it all, once for all. So it was an interesting conversation, but as he, you know, and by the way, if you talk to people like that, you need to take them to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, it explains it crystal clear. And so here we find those three roles of Christ as the king, the great king. And secondly, he is God's final prophet. And then thirdly, he is the preeminent high priest and in his high priestly role he has taken care of the sin problem once for all and then as we come down in chapter 10 we come towards the end of that chapter and he gives us these admonitions after he has completed talking about jesus in his priestly role he says, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us do these things. Because of what has been said, because of who Christ is, 
We come to verse 22. Let us draw near. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. And then number 24. And let us consider one another. And let us be faithful to gather together to provoke one another to love and good works. And so the applications are really three questions. Have you drawn near? Have you drawn near? Have you obeyed the salvation that has been preached by Jesus Christ? God has spoken now in these last days by his son. Do not let those words drift away from you. You will not escape if you neglect so great salvation. Draw near. But then secondly, hold fast. Hold fast. Those who are Christ's persevere. They hold fast and they hold fast to the end. And the next chapter is going to be a ex- whole list of examples of those who held fast to the end. And then thirdly, are you faithfully gathering with God's people and considering one another to encourage one another? Listen, we need to be do that so much the more. You can't do it enough. You can't do it too much. As we see the day approaching, we need to be encouraging one another. Listen, this world is against us. This world is, you know, Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We can expect that. And when we gather together, what's it for? To encourage one another. Edify and to strengthen one another. Be faithful. Be faithful. And so here, we've come through 10 chapters, getting ready to embark on the 11th chapter where he gives us illustrations. Like I said, illustrations of those who were faithful, faithful to the end. Listen, we are to be faithful. Be faithful to the faith. Jesus Christ is the originator, he is the author, and he is the finisher of our faith. Listen, all the work has been done. All that is necessary for you and I to draw near to God in fellowship with him has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we can do to add to it. It has been finished, and we need to be faithful to that faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the message here of Hebrews. And Lord, we've taken so much time to go through each of these chapters. But Lord, let us not lose the big picture of this book. And Lord, help us to understand the truth, Lord, that, and, and be so familiar with it that we might be able to encourage others and show others indeed what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he has finished the faith. Lord, that he has completed and done everything. Lord, there's nothing that we can add. But Lord, let us heed the warnings. Let us, let us not let the words of Jesus Christ just drift on by. Let us not harden our hearts. Lord, let us not be dull of hearing. Lord, let us be eager to hear your word. Lord, that we would be meditating on it and growing in our knowledge and our love of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.